If you were in need of some good advice this morning, and you were to go on Amazon and say, you know, I'm a parent, I'd like to get some good advice in parenting, so you just typed in parenting, there would be over 100,000 parenting books available to you. If you said it's relationships that I would like some good advice about, I need to understand how to walk out relationships better, and you typed in relationships in Amazon, over 100,000 results would show up, 100,000 books you could choose from to learn about that. If you said, no, it's motivation that I need in my life, or it's uh, more success that I need in my life, or maybe it's, it's self-help that I need, more self-care, you would find 300,000 titles available giving you good advice about success, motivation, and self-care. And if you said, it's money is my problem, there's 400,000 books uh, that would be giving you good advice about money. Or if, you, if it's business that you're saying, I really need some wisdom in how to operate in business or run my business or function in business, there would be a whopping 600,000 titles available. So there's no shortage of good advice, and uh, surely something in the 1.4 million titles that I just kind of made you aware of would be beneficial uh, to you. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 10. The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. I mean, of course, it's, in a, broadly speaking, the entire Bible is wisdom literature, but the Bible is broken down into different genres of writing. You've got poetry and the law, and you have the Gospels, the four Gospels in the New Testament. You have, you have the letters that are doc, about doctrine, and, uh, and then you've got this thing called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is there to wisely guide our lives. But, you know, the prevailing idea around religion and around Christian faith is that it's about good advice. You come here on Sunday morning to learn how to live a better life, and I'm supposed to come up here as the preacher, and I'm going to open the Bible and I read some things and say, whatever you're up to last week, try a little better. This week, here's some good advice. That's how most people think about the Bible. That's how most people think about Christian faith. And if you are new to the scriptures or you're exploring Christianity, here's the most important thing you need to know. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. Advice is something that you do. News, good news, is something that happened in the past for you, that's impacting you, that's having a continual effect on you. You don't have anything to do with good news. Good news is something that was done on your behalf and is affecting your life today. And the gospel is good news, which is why we desire the wise guidance with a divine advice the wisdom literature that the scripture provides to us. So it's not that we're devoid of seeking God's wisdom. It's that the Bible is not simply one of 1.4 million titles you could put on your shelf. You don't add the Bible to all of the other potential ideas around good advice that there could be for how we could lead our lives. In fact, you don't, the Bible isn't on the same playing field as the 1.4 four million titles that are available, all of which contain, I'm, I'm, I'm certain many of them would be incredibly helpful to us, but the reason why we don't just say, well, I need good advice in my life and I just add the Bible to any, any of the rest of this, is precisely because of the good news, that the Bible is predominantly an epic. It's revolving around Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And if Jesus is who he said he was, then the wisdom of the scriptures trumps everything else, all other wisdom. If Jesus was who he said he was and he did what he and he actually did what he said he came to do, 
which was to live the perfect life we could never live, die an atoning death in our place for our sin because none of us could live a life pleasing of perfect loving and and, uh, perfect justice and perfect worship towards God and perfect love for our neighbor. None of us could do that. And if he did that, and if he rose from the grave on the third day and the tomb was empty, like history tells us that it was, and if he was who he said he was, then the wisdom of God is the lens through which we are to look at life. We don't look at God's word through the lens of life to see how it stacks up with the 1.4 million titles we have that are all vying and lobbying for our minds and our hearts. So this is how we understand the text. I'm taking the time to explain this to you before we go into Ecclesiastes 10 because uh, you may be here this morning and may be uh, accustomed to looking at the scriptures in that way. Now we're going to kind of look down and we're going to kind of pull out the action points and walk them out on Monday. But I need you to know that even though there would be a value to that because it would be probably enrich your life and enrich your neighbor's life, there would be actually no rest for you in that if Christ is not made central. I was in a taxi cab. I told many of you this going to the airport just a couple weeks ago and had a very long conversation with my driver the entire way who was a Muslim and we had a long conversation around how does the Quran talk about God and how do the scriptures talk about God? What does the Quran say about how you please God? What does the scriptures say? We were going back and forth. And he wasn't a very devout Muslim, uh, but nonetheless, we were having this fantastic conversation and where I was able to introduce him to this concept, this idea of grace, that of course, in, in the Christian faith, the life that we're living is, is from freedom because Christ has already done everything. And this is what he said to me. He said, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we're, I mean, it's all the same. Whether I go to the mosque or you stand in the, in the pulpit at your church, you know, at the mosque, they're trying to tell me how to live a better life, and you're trying to tell your church how to live a better life, and that's why we all go and worship. And I said, well, no, that's, that's not why the Christian church worships at all. They're not coming to hear me give them good advice. And I know this is like a massive precursor before I read this text, but it's so, it's so important for us to understand that the Bible is an epic, that it's about, it's about Jesus and what he did, and that your worship here today is about a deep work of his grace in your heart that does renewal, that is profound, that a thousand sermons couldn't do. And we want to, and we want to orient our hearts and our minds towards this so that we don't just take God's word and say, I'm going to just put on the shelf with the 1.4 million other titles that are all trying to give me good advice. The word of God is in a completely other category because Jesus is who he said he, he is. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 5 to 7, and then I'm going to read verses 16 to 17. Normally, I like to read as much of a passage at once, but the reason I'm breaking that out is because in Ecclesiastes 10, Solomon stops and he does this rapid fire of these short little proverbs, and he hits you with a bunch of proverbs, pam, 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 pam. And in Hebrew poetry, which this is, uh, well, I shouldn't say, it, I mean, it's wisdom literature, but I mean, it, it's a poetic device. It's called antithetical parallelism, which is a big fancy way of saying this or that, this or that, this or that, this or that. And they're short little thoughts that aren't all necessarily... Um, uh, we could spend a lot of time on them. So I'm going to take verses 5 to 7, verses 16 to 17, and we're just going to look at this this morning and pull it out, and we're going to uh, ask ourselves um, not only what this means, but how Christ is fulfilled and how it enriches our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, starting in verse 5. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Foolishness is elevated 
to many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like servants. Woe to you, O land, when your child is a king and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. This is God's word. We're going to look at this text, we're going to unpack it, we're going to ask these three questions that I mentioned earlier. What does this mean? How did Christ fulfill this? And how do we live in light of this? This is how we approach all of Scripture, really with those three questions in view. What does it mean? How did Christ fulfill it? How do I live in light of it? In verses 5 and 6, Solomon observes that there's this grave error in leadership. He says, there's a major error in leadership, and I see it proceeding from the top. What does that mean? It means that people are given positions of honor and power and influence to those who are, and they're unfit. And then they give positions of power and honor and influence to people that are unfit to lead. This is what Solomon's contemplating. Whether it's from an ignorance of a lack of character or a lack of competence or a lack of integrity to lead, whether it's nepotism or it's blind affection for the unfit leader, they seem to be elevated and Solomon's saying, what's going on here? Meanwhile, those who would actually serve well in positions of uh, leadership, whether it's uh, you know, civil, uh, national, or organizational leadership, those who would serve well and those who wouldn't uh, you know, abuse the power, they seem to be living these humble, unspectacular lives in society. And Solomon's going, what is with this? Those who are fit to lead aren't, and those who aren't fit to lead are. Hmm. And he's looking down the corridor of history, and he's going, this is interesting. It says that the, the rich are sitting in low places. Now, the context isn't just rich in terms of their material wealth, but the context of this is wisdom. So there's people who are rich with wisdom, but they're not leading. They're rich with ab- ability and, and gifting uh, and knowledge, and they're abundantly qualified, but they're not, lead- they're not lead- leading. They're living in obscurity. And Solomon's like, this seems like a huge error. Why are all the wrong people being promoted? Right? Have, you know, have you, it's, you've ever come up to uh, an election at some point and found yourself struggling. We're a very small country. There's 40 million people here. But I mean, you, you're, you're kind of like, you're like, wow, there's 40 million. Are these really, this is really what I'm contending with. It's difficult, right? You find yourself, it's difficult. And maybe you find yourself like, like that in your organization. You watch people being promoted and moving up the ranks and you're saying, this, why is this happening? And in our own pride, we think, oh, wait a minute, if anybody in this room should be promoted, it should be me. I should be the one that's being promoted. It's frustrating. You can identify with this text. That's what it means. That's what's going on. Solomon's provoking us to consider, guys, the world is upside down. There's things that are going to happen that are not going to make sense. And how are you going to handle that? And how are you going to deal with that? And he's being thoughtful. He's looking through biblical history as he's thinking this through. Right? You've got the, the wicked man Haman. He's in the court. And then you've got this God-fearing Mordecai. He's a commoner sitting in the gate. David the worshiper is wandering in the mountains. And the self-obsessed narcissistic Saul is sitting on the throne. You've got the prophet Elijah. He's exiled to the caves. The defiant queen uh, Jezebel is, is uh, boasting in the palace. So he's kind of considering all of this. That's what it means. Well, how did Christ fulfill this? How does any of this point us to the goodness of Jesus? Everybody expected the Messiah to come into the world and fix the world by rising to political power. This is Solomon's dilemma. The wrong people are in political power, and they knew the prophecies of the Messiah. And when Jesus came, what did everybody think Jesus was up to? 
fixing the world by rising to political power, making life more favorable for the people of God by changing things in public office so that the way that the, their experience of the country was run was more beneficial for the people of God. That was their expectation of the Messiah. They had big plans for Jesus. They had a huge agenda for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to get on their agenda. They wanted Jesus to be their mascot. Jesus got on nobody's agenda. Jesus is nobody's political mascot because Jesus is the king. See, this is a text about Solomon having a problem with the king because the king seems to be doing the wrong thing. Jesus came. He was the king that never ceased to do the right thing. And the right thing was not the obvious thing. Jesus didn't take up power, he laid it down. Jesus didn't choose the strong, he chose the weak. He didn't sit with those who had cultural influence. He sat with prostitutes and drunks. In short, the king of kings came and he established a kingdom in a way that the people of God didn't understand, the people of God didn't expect, the people of God, quite frankly, didn't want. This is how he came. And then he did what nobody expected. He defeated death by dying. So how do we live in light of this? If Jesus, is, if Jesus is the king that we all deserve but we don't want, how do we live in light of this? Well, we shouldn't be surprised when those who are unfit for government are promoted to government, and we should pray for the government. And we can have great peace knowing that our lives are not in the hands of the government. By the way, this is not an, I'm not, this is, I'm saying this, I'm saying this broadly speaking. Now, this is not a direct, um, I'm not shooting uh, bullets at our present uh, administration. I fully expect that in this room, there's people who have landed in every political camp. And you'll never hear me make a partisan comment up here. There'll never be any commentary as to where my votes go. And quite frankly, uh, uh, I don't, I, I don't uh, belong uh, to any one uh, party each year. I, I'm very thoughtful as to where that vote is going to go, and, I'm, and you're never going to know. I'm never going to talk about it. I'm going to be highly political, but never partisan, because the Word of God, in case you haven't noticed, is trying to help the people of God orient themselves to how they relate to the government with the rest knowing that their, their lives aren't in the hands of the government. You're going to live a life of constant anxiety, if you, think that you're li- if, if you think your life is the hands of, in the hands of little kings. But the point of this text is to provoke you to consider that your, your life is in the hands of the great king. And so this is how we live. Not surprised if the wrong people get promoted and pray. And enjoy great peace knowing uh, that our lives are in the hands of God. In verse 7, he goes on and he says... I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking around like servants. What does that mean? Well, horses in the ancient world were reserved for uh, royalty. And if you weren't royalty, then you were a servant to the royalty. Those were your options. And it didn't matter how much money you had. You were still a servant to the royalty. So horses are for royalty. People who aren't royalty walk. Okay. And then Solomon says, I'm noticing there's slaves on horses. And there's princes walking on the ground. How does Jesus Christ fulfill this? Jesus Christ came, though he was royalty, as a servant. He didn't ride through the streets on a horse. He didn't hang out with the Pharisees on their their religious high horses. 
Jesus walked through the dusty streets like a servant. He loved the unlovable like a servant. He washed his disciples' feet like a servant. But he was the king. Solomon is confused because there seem to be people who are riding around on horses, but they're not free. They're slaves. And there seem to be people who have no societal influence. They're not powerful people, and they're walking on the ground, and they're walking on the ground, but they're not slaves. They're free. Notice the striking language that he's using here. This great irony, right? It's possible to have a very high position in life and not be free. And you can pine for a very high position of influence in the city or the organization. You can pine to be a little king on a horse, a little queen on a horse, and never be free. And so Solomon looks at this and he says, there seem to be people who have low positions and they're completely free. Your station in life is not the sign that announces how God feels about you. The cross is the sign that announces how God feels about you. You see, the good news of the gospel is that as Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived but were not, and he died an atoning death to cover all of our sin so that we could be covered in his grace, and then he rose on the third day and he ascended to the throne, and his death and resurrection and ascension is a constant reminder to us that this life isn't all that there is. That relocates our identity from needing to be little kings and queens on horses, striving to be on horses, to be important. That relocates our sense of identity to understand that our identity is actually not located in who we are, but in whose we are. And ultimately, we are free from the idea that success or failure defines us. Your success and your failure, or your failure does not define you. The cross defines you. Being a child of God is what defines you. You see, you're, you're children of God, so you're royalty. But you, but you see, the cultural, the modern conversation of evangelicalism is that somehow we, the, we, the children of God, we, the divine royalty, should somehow all be riding around prancing on horses through culture. And if you believe that utter nonsense, then you're going to be very confused and very anxious when life doesn't work out well. Because we're going to be like, something's wrong with the world. Why aren't we all prancing around on horses? We're the children of God. Yeah, we are the children of God, but you want to know something? Uh, It's possible to be royalty, like Jesus was royalty, walking through the dusty streets completely free. If Jesus was able to do it, I'd venture a guess that it, it, it isn't too low a station for us to go through life and not feel like we've somehow been divinely wronged, that God has fallen off the throne, that there's a cosmic silence, that God's not listening to our prayers when things are going badly. You see, this text is all about relocating our way of our, our, our hearts and our minds when things are not good. And the good news of the gospel and why we all come in here to rest on Sunday after Sunday to hear about the goodness of Jesus is so that our hearts can be reoriented out of all the stress and anxiety that is in your life Monday to Saturday. So that you can recalibrate and rest in this good news. And then be wisely guided by his good guidance. In verse 16 it goes on and he says, 
Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. I love it. Oh, it's not going to be good when the king is a child. Wow. What does this mean? It's, it, it's not a commentary on age. I mean, you had two, we had two, uh, two child kings in Israel's history, seven and eight years old, respectively. It's not, it's not necessarily, it's not really a commentary on age. It's a commentary on, on a lack of wisdom, a lack of judgment, a lack of, of good conduct. You can have knowledge but not wisdom because wisdom comes from experience and you just, there's only one way to get experience and it's by living life and having, having suffering happen to you. And so until you live life and you, have some, you can't roll your sleeves up and show some people some scars, you, it's very difficult to have wisdom. You can just have a lot of head knowledge, right? Well, we have a king who can roll up his sleeve and show us some scars. And so he says, woe to you, O land, when the child is the king. You can be intelligent and academic, but at the same time incredibly immature. And, you know, in the ancient world, they fostered the idea that um, you, you weren't fit to lead unless you had experience. For example, in ancient Rome, and this, this, was, this was present uh, in Solomon's uh, day, which is why, precisely why he's making this commentary, because typically in the ancient, in the ancient st- government structures, you had to rise through every rank. Like you had to serve at the lowest level of government and you had to serve all the way up to the top. In the, in the, in the Roman, um, Roman antiquity, it was called uh, the cursus honorarium, which is Latin for the course of honor. And it meant you had to serve in every station. Then they had a ceremony and it was called the toga cadendida. And the toga cadendida was a ceremony where those who were wanting to rule at higher levels of government would strip their robes off and stand naked so the people could see their battle scars. And guess what? If you didn't have any battle scars because you hadn't gone to battle for the, for the, the nation, against the nation's enemies, you weren't fit to lead. It was pretty simple. They're like, hey, son, you're pretty smart, you, you, but you haven't been to battle, so how, why don't you have a seat? You see, that's how the ancient world saw it. It didn't mean that they, they, they disregarded and shunned young people. I just wanted to contrast it from from moderns here. You see, they valued that what youth bring is innovation, new ideas, energy, vitality, right? vision. So they valued all of those things, but they weren't going to give wisdom, they weren't going to give high positions to a child king. So Solomon is like, woe to you whose king is a child. And because it, was, it smacked in the face of how they understood uh, you were fit to lead in the ancient structure. So that's what it means, right? That's what it means. It was uh, funny because they said that, you know, the, the, when the king is the child, the, the child is, when you think about a child, the child is living for constant pleasure. They're easily enticed. They're easily swayed. Children are self-willed. Children don't want to be told what to do, right? Um, and so he says, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the, the old Disney movie, The Lion King, but it's like, woe to you, O land whose king is like Simba. You know? I just can't wait to be king. Nobody tell me to do this or do that. Yeah! Uh, woe to you if that's your idea of leadership. How many of you, when you were kids, were like, I can't wait to be an adult because then I can do whatever I want all the time. Yeah! And now you're adults. And how's that How's that going? How's that going for you? How's, uh, how are you enjoying doing everything you want all the time, whenever you want to do it? How's your life? Adults? <laughs> Spoiler alert, kids! 
This is what this is what the this is how the child king is. It goes on in verse, the second half of verse king, uh, of verse sixteen, when the when when the king through nepotism or whatever reason, he elevates all of his buddies and all of his buddies become princes and, and princesses. It, the princes, what does it say they're doing? It says they're feasting in the morning. So everybody, he's got all his buddies, he elects them to government, they all rise up, they're in the organ, whatever, it's, it's, the, it's the club, and uh, they're feasting in the morning. What does that mean? Well, the morning is an important word because all throughout... Uh, Biblical history, the morning was significant for various things happening in the morning. And in the ancient world, the morning was when the kings uh, and the rulers of government would do their business and make their judgments. and That's what they were doing in the morning. The morning wasn't for feasting, okay? It'd be the equivalent of somebody starting drinking, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. You're like, uh, what are you doing, right? That, that's what's going on here. And so uh, the reason why he brings this out is because... It's a way of saying the childlike leader is constantly doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. They're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time because they can't read the room, they can't <laughs> read the situation, they can't read the nation. And when you think about it, they're feasting in the morning. Think about children. What do children want to do first thing they wake up in the morning? Feast! I'm hungry! They wake up. As soon as their eyes pop open, I'm hungry! Now, left to their own devices, what would children eat? Like if they could just eat whatever they wanted, what would they eat? <laughs> Nothing good? Like nothing healthy? If you just took your child to the cereal aisle and said, Behold, my prince, my princess, pick, and you shall feast in the morning. What's going to end up in the cart? You know? Something that's not the natural color of food. And then they're going to feast on it, and they're going to eat it in excess. That's what kids do, right? That's why some of you guys have like the second bowl cereal rule. It's like first bowl has to be this you know, puff wheat or some ridiculous thing that nobody wants to eat, but you like, that's the first rule is you got to eat this because it's halfway healthy, and then, you know, you can have your, you can put your chocolate bars in milk and eat that. Right? That's, <laughs> that's what we do, because this is how children are. And so Solomon is drawing our attention to this. He's going, that's the, that's the childish leader, feasting on convenience, whatever brings their little appetite joy, and then they feast on it in excess. It goes on in verse 17 to say, they're feasting not for strength, which is the good way to feast, eat and drink and celebrate for strength. It says they're doing it for drunkenness. In other words, not only does the childlike leader do the wrong thing at the wrong time, they do it for the wrong reason. They're not using their power or their position to enrich others. They use their power and their position to enrich themselves. All right, back to Jesus, who's the point of this text and the point of the entire Bible. What do we find? How does Jesus fulfill this? Jesus came into the world with the vulnerability of a child. He grew up with the stigma of being a bastard since he was a child. And yet, because of his love for God the Father, Jesus demonstrated tremendous wisdom since he was a child. And unlike the childish king, Christ the king didn't use his power or position to enrich his own life. He came and he laid down his power and he gave his life to enrich your life. This is what he's done. It's in a stark contrast to the child king and Christ the king. The child king has terrible timing. Christ the king has impeccable timing. He reached out to social outcasts 
at a time when society distanced themselves from them. He taught the disciples by serving at a time when nobility demanded to be served, when the self-righteous expected to be praised by him, he condemned them. And when sinners expected to be rejected by him, he forgave them. Jesus' timing was amazing. The, the timing of Christ the King, it was wise, loving, gracious, just, it was perfect. Read the Gospels, read Jesus' life, and, and look at how many times he keeps saying things like, it's not the time for this, it's the time for that. There's a time for this and there's not a time for that. One of the prevailing conversations Jesus had was around timing. The timing of why he came, the timing of what he was going to do why he came, the timing of what he was going to bring, and the timing of how we live in between the now, the already of what he has brought, and the not yet of what he's coming. You see, that helps us, church, not be like the childish fools in Ecclesiastes 10. We all have the capacity to be, if we were going to put ourselves in that story, in that text of Solomon, and say, I have the capacity to be like a child king or a child queen. I mean, I have that capacity to do that, to not have a sense of timing, to feel like I need to feast now. Why aren't I feasting now? One of the prevailing complaints of Christians, when, when we complain, if you really listen to us, when we complain, here's our complaint. Why hasn't God done anything about this now? Why hasn't he fixed this now? Why am I still in this now? Why aren't I feasting now? I do it. You do it. If you are convinced that you don't do it, please see me after the service so I can pray for you and cast the lying devil out of you. We all, we all do it. Because this is our complaint. God, why haven't, why haven't you fixed this thing now? The child king wants to feast in the morning. I want to feast at the wrong time. Christ the king, his timing is perfect. It's impeccable. Here's the good news. Yeah, of course we want to know what God's doing. Of course we want to know when he's doing it. Of course we want an answer for the thing that's coming up this Thursday at 4.30 like he's not aware. Okay, of course. But here's what this text provokes us to see. When we consider Christ the King, when you consider the only reason that you're here on Sunday morning and you rolled out of your warm, cozy bed and you drove through that cold drivel, not to come up here and listen to me give you good advice, please but to point you to the one thing you need to deal with the anxiety, the stress, and the thing called life that you're dealing with on Monday, tomorrow. Here's the thing. Most of us, here's what the text provokes, most of us, when we get in that mode, we don't want a God. We want a genie and a lamp. We don't want a loving father. We want a cosmic butler. Oh, my life seems to be uncomfortable. Lord, if you would, bring the feast. I know I'm being facetious. You say, Paul, how dare you mock my suffering? I'm not trying to be facetious, and I'm not mocking your suffering. I'm trying to get you to see that in, in, in our darkest, most stressful, most anxious, most frustrating, angry, shaking our fist at heaven moments, at the bottom of those moments, we have a problem with God's timing. But he has perfect timing. He's never ceased to have perfect timing. 
Which means, even right now, and what you don't understand to be perfect timing, he is doing glorious things in you through this. And he will bring you through this in his perfect timing, whatever the this is for you. That's because God, God promises to provide for you and guide you and comfort you and strengthen you. He promises to do those things. He delivers on his promises. He knows you. He cares for you. He cares about every little detail about you. He loves you. But he doesn't answer to you. He's the king. This is the problem with the gods of our own construct in our culture. This is the problem with the cultural commentary of God in the streets of Kitchener or Waterloo as well. If there was, if there was a God, he would be setting a feast for me every day. And since my life resembles nothing like a feast, therefore, perhaps there is no God. Maybe you're here today, and the suffering of your life, and the frustration of your life, and the problem of evil and culture is your big hurdle to believing in God. And let me encourage you, even just from a, from a logical and reasonable standpoint, God's reluctance to do what it is that you think he should be doing when you think he should be doing it is not a good use of reason to conclude that he doesn't exist. That's a good place to begin. Because if there is a God who is big enough if you believe God should be big enough to, to fix everything, you also have a God who is big enough to do things as he sees fit. And you can't have it one way and not the other. You can't say, well, if there was a God, he would clearly be fixing everything the way that I see he should be fixing. But since he isn't, he can't be there. What? How was that? How did you... His timing is perfect. He's a God of love. Jesus the King, the great demonst demonstrates this beautifully. Your life is not defined by what's happening to you right now. The gospel liberate, liberates you to enjoy your life today because you know that you have more than just today. You see, by grace and faith, you're united to this great King, the one who defeated death and promised to return. And with his return, raise you to a life that's described as an ongoing, unending celebration, an unending, ongoing feast. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 5, at 25 depicting the very feast that we wish our lives were today promises is coming. Isaiah 25 says this, The Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast. What's the one thing every Christian wishes that God was doing right now in every terrible situation in their life, like right now? That, that, that's what they want. The king, who doesn't answer to us, came, died on a cross, to ensure that you and I will enjoy an eternal feast. This life is not all that there is. And that gives us tremendous hope and strength for the moment and for the day. The text says, The Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, full, choice meat, and aged wine well-refined. I don't know about you, that's a prophecy I can get behind. I am 100% behind this prophecy. Choice meat, aged wine, I'm in. Which means, until that day, where the resurrection gives us a tremendous hope, 
that the resurrected Christ was raised bodily, which means you'll be raised bodily. He said, hey, you got any fish? Which means you and I will enjoy a feast. Which means that the, the grace of what God did at the beginning when he created, he intends to recreate. He will recreate. This is what grace does. This is the promise of the gospel. We don't just zap fry into heaven and float around in the, you know, if kids are in here and some of you kids are like, am I sure I want to go to heaven? I'm not sure. That means I got to float around in baby diapers and play a harp. That's not heaven. That's a coloring book someplace. The Bible doesn't teach that. The resurrection of Jesus, this feast that's coming gives us hope for what you have to deal with when you leave this place tomorrow. This is the good news of the gospel. And I close with this. It says, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Nobility in the, in the Hebrew is kachor, which means white or pure from the cleansing, shining power of fire. It's symbolic of white, gar- uh, white garments. Happy are you if the king is not a child, but if the king is dressed in white. Who's that king? White garments signifying purity, ingenuity of their mind and their actions. This nobility, Solomon says, this is an illustrious person. This is a person by birth and education. They're great in their life and in their action, famous in wisdom and virtue, mighty in the law. Who is that king? What world leader does that describe? Exactly. Jesus Christ is this king. Pure in mind, pure in heart, pure in thought, pure in word, pure in deed. Perfect in wisdom, clothed in white, the white of the brightness of his virtue, mighty to fulfill his own law for you. Jesus is not just a king with the power and the authority to tell you what to do. Jesus is the king with the power and authority who came to do what you could never do. Our king didn't come riding on a high horse, looking down on us. Our king walked on the ground like a servant, and he became one of us. Our king didn't sit back on his throne and demand that we meet the requirements of his perfect loving law. Our king left his throne, and he fulfilled the requirements of his wise and loving law. The gospel is not an invitation for you to follow good advice. The gospel is an announcement of saving grace, inviting you to follow your king. Let's pray.